Welcome to Battlegrounds, coming to you this week from Queensland, the first of two programs coming from Queensland to report on the battle between renewable energy and nature. This week I'll be travelling to Ravenshoe in far north Queensland, the epicentre of this battle. It's near the site of the Chalumban wind farm proposal which you will have heard about. This one has become notorious in terms of renewable energy development. If Chalumban goes ahead, we have to ask what next? The Chalumban forest is a beautiful part of the country. It is wet sclerophyll forest adjoining an area which is under the control of UNESCO, a World Heritage listed site. It's home to the greater glider and the magnificent brood frog and other creatures. We know the sort of destruction which occurs when they build a development such as this in a natural forested area in the highlands of Queensland. We know because it's happened nearby at Caban to the north of Ravenshoe. This footage is Caban under construction. You won't have seen much of this coverage of course on much of the mainstream media. They don't seem to be keen to get out of the city and uh, they're certainly not keen on reporting on the negative sides of renewable energy. Renewable energy of course has benefits or so they say but has many costs as well and uh, those costs are the ones that we think uh, deserve considering. Well the impact on local communities is huge of course as we've been reporting on Battleground for a number of weeks now. You won't see much of this in the mainstream media. They don't seem interested in this story. They want the positive stories about renewable energy. They're not prepared to look at any of the many terrible negative effects. The Prime Minister will tell us that we have abundant renewable energy, plenty of wind and sun. We seem to be uniquely blessed in that regard according to Anthony Albanese. But the point is there is a scarce resource here which has not been taken into account and that is land. Uh, even in a country as Australia, when you have an energy source as dilute as wind and solar, you eventually run out of suitable land and you start looking to valuable farmland and other places where there are alternative uses. It's really time that the mainstream media woke up, I think, and started to look at what's happening around Australia, particularly here in Queensland, I think we're some of the worst examples of the conflict between land-hungry renewable energy and the landscape are taking place in Chalumban, up there in Upper Burdekin, and uh, in other sites like Lotus Creek inland from Mackay. The impact on communities is barely taken into account. In Ravenshoe, where I was earlier in the week, there was the Chalumban wind farm has really rallied people around the cause, as I found when I went to a community gathering down there at the park, just outside the Cheeky Possum Cafe last weekend. Can you hear me? Even though 42 time wind turbines have been planned, it's actually 42 wind turbines too many. And I think we all agree with that. Yeah. Do you agree? Yes. Okay. We've seen what's happened to Caban. All you can see when you come in to Ravenshoe are wind turbines on the northern side of this beautiful town, this beautiful place. Um, and when we look at what is required for any turbines, it's basically a totally different land use 
to industry, heavy industry, with haulage roads, with trucks, haulage trucks, 60 metre to 100 metre wide, and there are whole areas just being blasted. Why should our wildlife have to die for this? This is the wrong direction. It's not going to address climate change. It actually has nothing to do with climate change. Why? They're not talking about biodiversity. They're not talking about deforestation. If they were talking about protecting our biodiversity, they would not be destroying it. Our carbon sink forests, it's not climate action. There is no mandate, no mandate to destroy our environment and our beautiful Chalumbut. This region, we are all in, in distress. Distress. We've been in distress for three years since witnessing the destruction of Caban. This must not happen to Chalumbin. We need biodiversity for our billion dollar bee industry. We need it for our tourism. We need it for agriculture. If we destroy the insects, the bees, the biodiversity, these are Australia's assets. This is Australia and what is Australian. Who's standing up for the eagles and the bats and all the bird life? And this is koala and greater glider, glider habitat. At any cost, we will defend. We will defend Chalumban. They have no right. They do not own biodiversity. This is our beautiful community of Ravenso, strong, vigilant, and having the guts to show up can you hear? This is Georgina who's been fighting for Chalumban, for cultural heritage, for the wildlife for so many years. Please give a hand to Georgina and our Indigenous friends. Thank you. And custodians. Kabam's already bleeding. It's, there's no repair. There's no recovery. And Chalumban untouched, exactly the same, you know? You don't need words to explain the painting. It says it all. Um, and if you look closely at Chalumban Untouched, Kamban Bleeding, the old people are always watching. They're always there. And, <clears throat> you know, it's... I don't know. They changed the name because they think that was going to solve the problem. They think that was going to change the outcome of what they wanted. That's just a swipe of the hand, just a magic trick. I'm not going to stop. It's still the same place. You know, it, we're saying Nanaji Wiggy Wiggy Walga still belong to that wobble. Our old people's spirit belong to that forest. So changing the name doesn't take that away. That's a swipe of a hand. The difference between cow and horse manure is the shape, nothing else. Call it what you like, call it a mushroom farm if you like. Your intentions are still the same. You still have ill intentions. Me and Melita, my mother, Fabian, we didn't give you permission to take away our children's cultural identity. Yeah. We didn't give you that permission. You don't have that right to destroy their future and take away their identity. It belongs to them and that's where it must stay with our children.
and yeah, this is uh, Melita. Hello. Um, I just like to speak on my uh, behalf of my ancestors and my Jirabal people. Um, it's really heart sore because of the grief and the sorrow. We just we we just want to pull Caban down and save Chalumban. I've got this message from Trish. Um, she says to my friends of Chalumban, my apologies for not coming over this morning to join you all. My niece passed away in Kowo this morning. From my heart, I thank you all as individuals and as a community. Big thanks following people from me. Laurie for always supporting me. Stephen Nowakowski, Michael Seebeck for speaking up for all of nature. Nick Cater for putting this tra tragedy of nature destruction out there for everyone to read. Carolyn and Matt always supporting me. I pray Plibersek says no, no, no and declares it an untouchable national biodiverse environmental park limits to any and all foreign companies. If rejected, that's one personal fight, one for me. I'm still fighting the other evil corporation until they run out of Jittable, run off, until they are run off Jittable country. Many thanks, Patricia Mitchell. Thanks Laurie. Laurie has a cheeky possum. I'm just going to read a poem I wrote the other day. Um, it's called Creeps on the Wild. Those carpet baggers are coming, laying claim to our wonderful land, dragging their towers and turbines, so we're forced to make this stand. We say no to forest destruction, to species extinction as well. We treasure our goshawks and quolls, our cranes and frogs do well. We say no to mountaintop clearing, with erosion the likely result. We say no to dozing and blasting. This destruction just has to stop. Who are these vandal marauders ripping out trees as they go? Who seek only money and handouts, subsidy payments a go? The results of this forest invasion is to save CO2, so they say. They're, yet their path is abundantly littered with CO2 spent on the way. Does this madness give us a climate free from cyclones, storms and fires? Or does it just give us more headaches, destruction, noise and more lies? We say no to the turbines and blades, to the gouging of deep forest tracks. We want Chalumban wild, so give us our natural bush back. Tanya Plebersek, please reject this outright. Please. Thank you very much. Caroline had asked me to come and step up. I'm Doreen Mortimer and I live out of Millstream Estate. And thank you for the people recognising that we the people count as well. Now their new plan with 42, it still would be around 10 kilometres 
from Millstream North and South. This is 1,246 people who filled out the census form in 2016. And I know a lot of the people out there didn't even bother filling it out in 2021 because it says we're 625 less, which I know is not a fact. And what we need to get through to these politicians is these little turbine dots on this map are going to look like this. This is what they want to put on the Great Dividing Range. This is our wet tropic herbert catchment area. It is 44% of the wet tropics that they are going to flood with the runoff that is from the headwaters down to the Great Barrier Reef, the World Heritage Great Barrier Reef. And what bloody politician in their right mind want to build an industrial wind farm with 42, let alone just one, one kilometre from the World Heritage Rainforest. Do they think the animals just stay in the forest? They are insane. And Tanya needs to know this. Anyway, thank you very much for your time. Love Chalumban. We're here for Chalumban. Chalumban is the name, and as Matt said, I agree with everything Matt has said that it will always be Chalumban. They can keep changing their corporate name, their corporate propaganda, they can keep changing. I think we all agree with that. Do you agree? Yes. Okay. To show up. And look, there's, there's hundreds here. Thank you for showing up. Um, I must say, I do thank uh, Matt Lachlan for what he said. Uh, I think, um, you know, he's been on the case and fighting hard. Can we give a round of applause to Matt? Thank you, Matt. You're a real trooper and a, amazing. <laughs> um, amazing, and we will prevail. I'd like to, int uh, uh, there is a person, there's a lot of people that might like to speak, but look, um, can I introduce you to Nick Cater, he's uh, a journalist, he writes for The Australian and he's, um, yeah, he's great and he's Nick Cater. Now, now we're discovering what this means, Eric must stop it. I'm going to record. And then the politicians come and everyone comes and says, aren't they wonderful? We can't hear a thing, but they're freewheeling. They haven't engaged the gears. So when they engage the gears, it's a totally different story. Long narrow house, half of it's looking at the turbines. Once you do that and you sit there under those windows, you're when you have turbines, you have brain fog, you have everything going wrong. Half an hour of moving away. They're fine now. Anyway, I just want to say that focus on what happens to your health. Uh, Koreans are now meeting that they have been monitoring everything 
They cannot find any radiation in any of the fish or seafood that they've been doing. They can't find any uh, sign of anything from Fukushima in the sea. And they're monitoring in about 300 spots all the way around that time. So what's really happening is that's the sort of money that they're being got. And it's with these very big ones, I'm not sure exactly how much they'll get, but it's a lot more than the $700,000 per turbine. But what do they give the people who own the land? Much stop. I present a program on ADH television called Battleground every week. We're going to use some of this footage. I hope to interview you some of you later. But in the course of this, I've travelled to communities up and down the, from Victoria right up to here. But I can tell you there are scores, possibly hundreds of communities like yours, facing invasion by wind farms or solar panels. And they're each fighting their own lonely battles. They're each outnumbered, outgunned without the money, just individual communities fighting against these massive international energy corporations and state and federal governments who seem to think it's okay to take away your natu natural amenity. I've been to these places just like Ravenshoe. Each one of these communities is now divided into the haves and have-nots. It's divided into the people that have taken the money from the wind farms or the solar panels and, and those who haven't, haven't either been offered it or have refused on principle. These are towns that were once very close-knit, towns that used to join together in the firefighting brigade, in the sausage sizzles, in the, in the Lions Club, in everything. Now they do not because the invasion of this has ruined, ruined these communities. We were not told that we were being asked to save the planet by killing the earth. It's just not on. Now, now we're discovering what this means. A report about a month ago, some of you may have seen, by a very qualified body called Net Zero Australia. They've looked at how much Australian land will have to be covered in windmills, solar farms, pumped hydro and transmission lines to get to this impossible dream of 82% clean energy by 2030. The amount of land is the equivalent to half the area of the state of Victoria or twice the area of Tasmania. Farmland, native bushland, everything in between covered in windmills, solar panels, transmission lines and pumped hydro. This is ecological vandalism on a scale I have never seen. Minister, come up here yourself. Do not make a decision about Chalumban as you're planning to do until you've flown here. We'll put, on, we'll put on a helicopter for you if it helps, Minister. We will fly you from Cairns Airport and we will take you up to the ridge where I was with Tommy and a few others recently and I looked down on this magnificent scenery. I'm going to record as much as I can today. I want to talk to as many of you can. I want to hear your stories because to surrender this, this is the oldest, most ancient living forest on earth you've got up here in North Queensland. It, it, it goes back to the period when Australia was joined to Antarctica and this kind of forest covered the whole of Australia. Some of the oldest creatures we know, some of the oldest plants are in this area from here right up to the tip of Cape York. And we cannot allow any more of it to be sacrificed for industry, particularly an industry like the renewable, industry, renewable energy industry, which we know is running on subsidies. It's running on your money and my money. If we're not paying for it now in our taxes, our children will pay for it in their taxes and on their power bills. This absolute lie that this is free, that it is cheap, 
has to be broken because you can just see just looking at Chilumban more than a hundred kilometres of roads they're going to plough through this forest all these great big pads you've seen it up at Caban this isn't just putting one turbine there it's about all the roads that have to go with it it's about cutting off half the hillside it's about bringing it bringing in dynamite to do it if you win this case you will give heart to people up and down the country that are fighting their own battles they will realize that this can be overturned we can defeat these monsters some of you may have been here i don't know in 1987 when the last time this was the center of a great environmental battle when the labor government came up and put an end to logging that was very controversial, it, it was very heavy-handed, it ended an industry that was providing very good incomes to lots of people in this town, and naturally it was a big shock. But let's look at their intention. They wanted to preserve these forests, they wanted to turn them into World Heritage Areas listed by UNESCO. Now, the very same Labour government this time is doing the very opposite. They are authorising the destruction of native forest which forms a very important buffer between here and the tropical rainforests further north. Chilumban. Friends of Chilumban, you've got many friends across the country. I wish you well and I look forward to talking you, to, to you later this morning. Thank you. And I, I move, I've lived in Cairns for about 30 years and I've travelled many places around the world. And I always feel absolute relief when I come to Cairns because we are surrounded by this absolute majestic beauty of the mountains that we have around the place. It's a lovely part of the it world, is. isn't it? Stunning. And I, and I have a, a family that's very um, farming orientated in Mariba and I go up there quite often to visit them and I absolutely admire the scenery. But recently we've had all these lovely big windmills start to pollute our scenery and here we are trying to attract tourists to our beautiful world heritage space and show them what we have on offer and it is absolutely scarred with these bird blending blooming windmills all over the all over our beautiful scenery it is an absolute blight absolute scar my son's an engineer who actually works at the costing of these things and has actually said to me they are not viably cost they just don't produce what they say they're doing and we are subsidizing and siphoning off all of our public money to these companies and destroying our beautiful heritage sites that we have here that we're supposed to be attracting tourism and the beauty of it all and it's all getting destroyed and it's it's absolutely devastating rarely I see them turning the current ones that are on view on the mountainside there rarely I see them turning they're just sitting there like big ugly scars to remind us of what this government is really doing to our beautiful world heritage landscape absolutely disgusting I'm very very disappointed and I'm up here to support these people I don't live in this area and I probably will never see these particular windmills but what they're doing to the landscape is absolutely horrendous and it doesn't justify the means to the ends at the end of the day. Tell me, I mean, I think a lot of people are familiar with windmills, unfortunately, and we mm. see them down further south in, you know, farming land. I've seen them in South Australia, but it's basically wasteland. Yes. And, you know, that's one thing. But to come across the hill, driving into Ravenshoe, coming off the hill and see those ones in Caban, sticking out of the top of native tropical forest... Yeah. It's it described to people who haven't seen it what it's like. It's heartbreaking. It's like, um, 
I don't know, it's like seeing aliens invading the beauty that's there. It's like this horrible man-made structure in amongst the most... It's, I, I, I just can't describe. It's like an ugly scar on our landscape. And it just... It's distracting and it's... I, I just... Yeah, it's just devastating and, and so disappointing at the end of the day that we've destroyed something that's so unique and and man-maids come in, men have come in and just done this. I, I just can't describe how vulgar it is. It's, yeah. And um, it's not just the scenery, it's what they've done to the, the ground. So we're not just killing the birds, we're killing off all the ground and the flora and the fauna. So it's absolutely devastating, yeah. So well, I, I'd coming. like to see thanks them change. Let's go for nuclear. Let's aim for nuclear, lower footprint, we could be leaders in safe nuclear energy in Australia if they just change the legislation. And I mean, we are leaders in technology in general. Why are we not being leaders in nuclear energy? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. You spoke very passionately this morning. You feel it right down, deep down here, don't you? It's a unexplainable sorrow. It's not a physical thing. I feel it in my spirit. creates unrest because the balance can be broken our culture's on a knife's edge and this could be what tips it over you know i'm working hard to instill culture in our young people that didn't have the privilege to learn from the elders and this is just making it more of a challenge than it should be the people who, write, who the people who put up this proposal, the Korean company, they say they have permission from the traditional owners. Is that true? In cultural law, all decisions are made by elders. You can get 50, 60 young people to say yes, but in cultural law, if two elders say no, it's no. You don't question it. You don't ask why. It just is. So that the the corporation, which is make this decision, the commercial body, that, that does not represent the elders. They don't represent the elders. They supposedly represent the best interest of the people. But how is the best interest of the people not protecting their culture? They are, after all, an indigenous organisation. The most important thing to indigenous people is their culture and their connection to country. But they, they stand a profit from this as well, don't they? So they're, they're compromised. They get money out of this. Yeah. That's why they're doing it. And you talk to people in public and they say, oh, I just do it for the money. You know? So they're using... They're using people's vulnerable lifestyles to lure them in to the money you know it's you either choose to be staunch in your belief of culture like me or you choose to feed your family and that's what they're playing on how is that in the best interest of the people when they're being made to make a choice between culture and feeding their family. Yeah. Do, do, do you get 
some encouragement from seeing 100 people or so here today all, all supporting you? Does that give you any encouragement at all? It's not about people and it's not about numbers. It's not even about being on TV or in media or... I can have a million supporters, but I do it because it's the right thing. You know? A lot of people don't like me, I'll be the first to admit that, because I stood up. But I will continue to do what's right. I'm not in this to be popular, I'm not in this to make friends. I'm not in it to gain support, that has just happened all by itself. I'm in it because it's the right thing to do, by my elders, by me, Melita, everybody's elders. Just because they're not here to fight this fight, which would have never begun if they were here, there wouldn't have been no questions. Um, and just because they're not here, that doesn't mean we can't stand up and fight the fight for them. Last time I spoke to you, you said that you weren't going to give up hope. No. I still haven't given up hope. You know? It's, hope is what I have. And it's those little things that big miracles come out of. And it's your, it's your elders, your ancestors, it's your people that you're thinking. That's right. If I lose hope, then I've lost my belief in my old people. In, in what's been around for centuries, and that's a spiritual connection to country that can't be explained. You have to be there to live it and feel it. You can't explain that. You have to experience it. So if I lose hope, then I lose, I'm giving up on that connection to my country and my old people, to the belief systems that they instilled in me, you know? Now, people like Noel Pearson tell us that if, you, if there was an Aboriginal voice to federal parliament, everything would be fixed, your voice would be heard. What do you think? What do I think? Indigenous voice to parliament. Don't they already have Indigenous voices in there? Are they being heard? I don't know. You know it's make any difference for you up here? wouldn't make any difference to us. And there are people all over Australia saying that one group of people from God knows where can't speak on behalf of every tribe. People will tell you, they can't speak on behalf of my tribe. They don't understand our law and our, the way our culture works. They understand culture, but it's not our culture. It's theirs. So they're speaking on their beliefs, not ours. So it's not truly our voice or our beliefs that are being put in there. You won't have enough room in Parliament to put a proper Indigenous voice in there. There won't be enough room. If you go to every single tribe and get a spokesperson, you're not going to fit them in Parliament House. So, yeah. Now, are there any more of your people here I could talk to? Um, only my niece, Melita. I'm just about to take my mum home. Can I have a quick word, Melita? Uh, yeah, she's just over here sitting down. Oh, think. yeah, go over there. Yeah. What did you think when you first heard about this wind farm proposal? Oh, well, I didn't really think nothing of it because I wasn't really into it until, you know, to London itself because it's a woman's sacred area site. And, yeah, it's our ancestors out 
our old people used to be there and um, it's emotional, really. It's emotional, it's sore, it's grief, it's sorrow. You know, it's... Can you explain what it means to be, you know, as a women, woman's sacred site, what does it mean? It means our... our we love our country, our land, our culture. We always... You know, we sat by, taught the children how to fish, hunt, talk, and with gatherings. It's all about gatherings and getting together. Yeah. And the water, the water, the water being pure water because that flows down to the ocean. Water, our waterways, beautiful natural spring waters. And, you know, it's... If it gets, if Chalumban's going, it's our healing, you know. It's, it's our, it's our healing place, you know. Have you been out to Gaban and seen what they've done there? Yes. What do you make of it? Uh, not really. I don't actually go out there. You know, I can see it along the roads. I don't go there. It's just a thing. Like, I just. I don't like going there. And you've seen the lights, at, the lights at night. Yep. It just gives me... I don't feel right when I go there. And when you see what they've done to the landscape there, they've chopped half a hill away. Yeah. And yep. And my, my, my father used to walk them mountains. He's walked over hill here, you know, and he'd be disgusted if he was alive, you know. You'd be really disappointed. Yeah. And um, even our ancestors. You know, we wanted to keep um, Chalumban and for our future generation, for our children, and teach them, you know. Can't do that, it's too emotional. It's, Stressing just thinking about it. Now, the Prime Minister says he wants an Aboriginal voice to Parliament because he wants to listen. He wants, he wants to set up an Aboriginal voice to Parliament because he wants to hear the voice of Aboriginal people. Okay, well, he's got a chance to hear your voice now. What, what's your message to him? Save Chalumban, pull, pull, pull Caban down. That's all I could say. And um, if he hears me, well, I just want, um, we just want it to be untouched, you know, like it always has been. And for our generation, the future generation that are coming, and our home, our healing, our hearts. Yeah. With such expensive capital costs, given the difficult terrain and remote location of Chilumban, you've got to wonder how it all makes sense, particularly how when they're only going to be producing a relatively small amount of electricity, and even then intermittently. 
Professor Stephen Wilson is a professor in energy management at the University of Queensland. He knows more about the operation of the grid than anybody else I know. I spoke to him about this earlier. Stephen Wilson, thank you for joining me on Battleground. Well, let's start with Chalumban. As you know, the, the company has scaled back, which to me makes it even less commercial a proposition. You're talking about probably the best part of a billion dollars in capital costs there. How does that make any sense at all from a commercial point of view? Well, I'd have to see the commercial numbers to give a really detailed answer, Nick. But I think the important thing um, to understand about all these projects is that you're quoting electricity numbers, but the primary product of these projects is really certificates. That's the driver for building them, is to, is to create, uh, to produce these certificates and get the revenues from the certificates. And so the electricity that's produced is basically a byproduct. So a renewable energy certificate, correct me if I'm wrong, is something that the company will get every time it generates a certain unit of electricity. That's right, is it? Yeah, the way the scheme's designed is that uh, every time you, the, the scheme generates one megawatt hour, it'll get a certificate uh, in acknowledgement of that, that it's generated. It's put one megawatt hour of renewable electricity onto the grid. And because there's a liability on um, retailers principally and large wholesale customers to um, hold a certain number of certificates to offset their consumption, that creates demand for these certificates. So it, does that account for why it, it, it is worth their while to keep these turbines turning? As I saw at Windy Hill last weekend, they were turning. Uh, but the price on the market was negative $50. They're effectively having to pay $50 to put that electricity into the market, but that still makes sense commercially, does it? Well, from an economically rational point of view, under this set of rules, so if you don't question the rules, you say, let's accept those. Uh, if you're receiving $50 or more from the, the sale of your certificates, which will be agreed under a, uh, that whatever the price is will have been agreed typically upfront under some kind of long-term contract. If you're getting $50 of revenue for the certificates, then it makes sense to keep generating it, you know, negative $49.99 or whatever the numbers are. But that's the basic idea, yeah. And what, what, what offset is there on the capital costs? So what kind of government subsidies or government special treatment kicks in to mitigate that huge capital cost? Oh, mo most of the subsidies are coming through the, the certificate scheme. That's the bulk of it. There's other bits and pieces of subsidies here and there, but the lion's share is around the certificate scheme and the value of those certificates. That's what's driving these markets. Mm. Yeah. And, and, and the way that it makes sense from a commercial point of view, from a bankability point of view, is um, that the revenues from those certificates are perceived as being certain. Right, so because because the certificates are ultimately issued by the government, uh, according to a law, the bankers, so both the the lenders on the debt side and the investors on the equity side, have confidence that the government will issue issue those certificates and they will have that value to the party that's paying for them, and that can all be agreed up front in a contract over you know a period of years, seven years or ten years or whatever the period is. And that is a crucial ingredient that helps underpin the financing of these projects.
but there's no there's no insistence that they they must produce that power when required or you know at times when it's required they they just simply have to feed it into the grid whenever they can get an opening to do so is that how it works yeah so they rely anyone that owns one of these assets is relying on the power system being able to accept the generation when the wind happens to be blowing and so one of the problems we're starting to see this i call this the saturation problem there's symptoms of the saturation problem all over the place but one of the problems that happens is that if you have uh, too much wind generation in a particular area and and either the network capacity you know bet between where that generation is occurring and where the load where, where the power needs to flow to meet the load if there's a constraint there then you can be constrained off it's called so if if, if the system can't accept all the megawatt hours of output either because the network is is maxed out or because the demand isn't there at that time or or there are other technical reasons that those power flows um, are not going to work or are going to create problems then you you'll be constrained off and th and that's one of the symptoms of saturation another symptom of saturation is the negative prices so that's telling you that at that time you know all the generation the generation that's on the margin that's setting the price the last increment of generation that's being called upon to meet demand is has been offered into the market at that price with the minus fifty dollars that you saw the other day mm, mm. so there are times of the day when we are we are seriously overloaded with renewables right wind and solar and and uh yeah those operators are being curtailed they're not they're not able to put in as much as they can into the network yeah. because there's enough already all the interstate connectors are jam full as it happens quite a lot nowadays uh, but so where is the benefit of adding more wind and solar at this point? Well, this is the issue, Nick, and that's why I call it a saturation problem, because as you add each extra increment, the value to the system becomes less and less. You have a diminishing returns problem. And, and so in, in the early days when um, you've got a very small amount of wind and solar generation relative to the size of the system, it's very easy for the system to absorb all of it. And the price will be set by some other generation, typically a thermal generator at a, at a, at a much more attractive price for the producers. But as you add more and more and more to the system, uh, it, it, ha it has a tendency to all generate at the same time. So even over quite large areas, it tends to be windy at the same time. There's some diversity, you know, you have, you do have a situation where it will be windy in one place and, and less windy in another, but even so, even across a, a continent the size of Australia, the, it's amazing the amount of, the weather patterns are large, and so the amount of um, uh, coincidence of generation is, is actually quite high. And obviously with solar, it, it's, you know, the sun is always up at the same time, I mean, given a little bit of difference with time zones and different longitudes basically it's it's uh, coincident and so everyone's trying to push it all onto the system at the same time and that suppresses the prices hmm. now wind we know we know uh, weather patterns would show that wind uh, is not as freely available in queensland as it is say down off the coast of victoria why is that oh it's just the nature of the the weather patterns and the the as, as they move across the country. I mean, down in the southern coast of Australia, 
if you look at the map, if you trace your finger around the globe, um, you know, heading westward from the, the, the southeastern coast of Australia, you, you've basically got open ocean. You're down in the, not, you're not far up from the roaring 40s. I mean, west coast of Tasmania, Bass Strait, you're in the roaring 40s. You know, you go all the way around the world past, you're going under the Cape of Good Hope and all the way around to South America before you hit land. So that, that, is, that is sort of the windiest part of the planet. And, and those weather systems are making landfall in, you know, in sort of South Australia and the, around the Victorian border and into Bass Strait. Up in Queensland, it's, it's not that kind of wind. It's, it's, just, it's a, just a very different wind conditions. So if you talk about productivity of these generators, I know that's an ugly word these days, productivity, but yeah. it's the productive, capacity of, the productive capacity of a wind turbine is going to diminish broadly, isn't it, from you, the, further, the further north you go, whereas you'd think a solar panel, uh, the productive capacity would probably increase the further north and the further inland you go. Yeah, a rough, a rough rule of thumb would be um, certainly with solar panels you get much better output west inland of the Great Dividing Range. So as you're going so n north of the divide in Victoria and west of the divide in New South Wales and Queensland, you'll get better solar conditions. Go too far north, of course, you get into the sort of tropical, more cloudy zone for large parts of the year. Uh, and then wind is sort of s somewhat the opposite. Although, you know, there are local... There are local sea breeze effects and other sort of local effects you can get with wind. So it, it is site specific, but as a general rule, what you're saying is true, I think, Nick. Now, we'll get on to the, 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 an economic principle, the principle of scarcity. Now, if you listen to advocates for renewable energy, the Prime Minister and Chris Bowen amongst them, they will tell you that we have many times, sometimes they will say hundreds of times more wind and solar uh, then we can ever use in Australia and therefore we should be exporting it in, in some form or another. But I think that what's missing from that argument is that there is a scarce resource and that's land, right? You, you, you need, you need yeah. a lot of land for these things. Yeah, yeah these, these things um, do have large land footprints. Um, I mean, if you're just looking at the base of the tower, it's not a very big footprint, but you've got all the connecting infrastructure you know, the underground transmission, the road, access roads, and then they need to be spaced out. And so w when you put these things down, you are making a very large uh, footprint impact on whatever landscape you're putting them on, no, no doubt about it. Uh, and, but the scarcity thing's a good point, Nick. I, I mean, I think, you know, obviously there's not any sort of ultimate scarcity of wind or sunshine, but the same is true of almost energy form, any form of energy. You know, you can say the same, it's actually the same is true about oil and gas and coal and uranium. There's plenty of ultimate resource, um, but, but what matters, and it's all, in effect, it's all freely available. The wind and the sun are freely available. And actually, in the same sense, the oil and the gas and the coal and the uranium, they are also freely available. I mean, you have a government to deal with and the government will put conditions on and extract royalties or whatever the case may be, but the, the ultimate physical resource is sitting there waiting for someone to use it or not. So the scarcity is, yeah, what do we want to use the land for? That's one thing. And then the financial capital, how are we going to deploy our scarce financial capital and our human capital, you know, the people and the brain power and the engineers and the tradespeople, how are we deploying that capital? Um, those things are scarce. And... What we do, if we deploy them unwisely, we will reduce our capital productivity. 
we will reduce our labour productivity. Uh, and, that, and, you know, and I think that is why we may well be starting to see symptoms of that in our economy. Well, yeah, I mean, it could, could well be one of the reasons why uh, labour productivity or multi-factor productivity is yeah. declining. Um, it's declined rapidly this year, for instance, and, and similar pattern occurs around the Western world where similar patterns of investment have been happening with renewable energy, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So th th these, these kind of uh, resources are unhelpful, I think, from a, from a productivity point of view. They, they will undermine or reduce or diminish productivity. I can't see there's any other alternative. One, one further constraint on land, which may explain why they're pushing to put wind turbines into, you know, areas of tropical forests like Chilumban, is that it, there are other factors. It needs to be one near a transmission line, uh, or there needs to have the access to a transmission line, uh, otherwise it's it's useless. Secondly, that in the case of wind, you, you, you'd want to be in a higher location. So that may account for why up and down the Great Dividing Range from Victoria right up to Cape York, you are seeing these kind of battles going on about com competition for land use, whether it's nature or farming versus renewables. Yeah, that's right. And I think you tend to find that the, the attractive local wind conditions tend to be along ridge lines because of the way the air flows over the landform. You know, you, you get the up the upward draft and the concentrating of the air mass as it, as it moves across ridges. And so they, they tend to want to put them on ridge lines, which means that they're sort of unsightly, they're having an impact on that particular part of the natural environment. You, you see that in other countries as well. You know, you fly over China and you'll see there'll be just rows of wind turbines all along a ridge line. Uh, and that's where their visual and other impacts are actually at the greatest. I, I sense there's a sort of um, chaotic character to this transition at the moment, Stephen. I'll give you one example. I was in Port Augusta, the Port Augusta Renewable Energy Hub there, which is uh, wind and solar. Uh, it seemed to me to be very low-value land, uh, not very good farming land at all, and it's quite a long way from any, any communities or housing right there on the southern edge of Port Augusta. But there they've got restrictions on the height of turbines, I think, to limit them to four-megawatt turbines. There are height restrictions put on place, but not height restrictions put in place in Chilumbin or whatever height restrictions are much larger because they're going for six megawatt turbines there. So it, it strikes me that if you were going to do this logically, you'd be using the low value land like around Port Augusta and you'd yeah. be preserving land, whether it's ecological value or farming value, you would be preserving that for other uses, wouldn't you? Yeah, you would. I would have thought so. Um, Certainly what we're starting to see now is competition for different um, land uses. Um, and, and, you know, that's, that's essentially a social decision. You know, that's, that's not a pure business decision. That's something that it is going to have impact on communities and, and society. And, yeah, there is a chaotic element to this. We're in a, we're in a world where we've got this weird combination of of a, a, a supposed free market on the one hand, and then a, a sort of central edict um, that's you know creating artificially creating the demand for certificates on the other, and the the outcome of that is this kind of cha chaotic uh, kind of behaviour. 
But we, none of this should have been any surprise to us, should it seem, because we've already seen elsewhere in the world, in the UK, in Germany, in, in the US even, these same pressures on land have, have occurred, the same pressures between the local community and the wind, solar, transmission, whatever it is, have occurred, and, and they put big restrictions on in, in basically in, in the UK. I think it's basically very hard to get any onshore wind uh, together now yeah. because of the... Why is this caught us so much by surprise? And are we seeing these international companies, whether they're investors from Denmark or, in this case, Arc Energy from, from Korea, are they coming to Australia because they see we're one of the few places where you can actually build this stuff relatively easily? Well, when we put the, if you trace it back, the laws that underpin all this were actually enacted way back in 2001, I think it was, in Australia. So I think at that time, we probably didn't have that many international examples to look at because it was it was early days um, where, of course, we put the, you know, the renewable energy target started at 2% and then, you know, towards the end of that decade was boosted to 20%. And then now we're a long way further down the road uh, and we're seeing all these pressures coming on. But we're also seeing in Europe that, uh, that the companies that, uh, and the industry that produces these turbines and installs them is running into really serious problems. And so maybe, uh, in fact, you know, Australia is the sort of last frontier um, for certainly for trying to push out into the offshore zones, uh, which we haven't yet commercialised with wind turbines. Um, you know, they've been playing that game for quite some time now in Europe and, and I think they've started to discover the saturation problems of their own. You mentioned peak, peak renewables uh, and I, we're running, if you take the AEMO figures, you know, I think 31, 32%, 33% around about that on renewable sources for the last, uh, for the last year. Can you can you see is when we get to peak renewables, what what percentage will that be? Is it easy to put a figure on that? Yeah, so that, that's probably the figure, including the hydro, isn't it, Nick? I think. Um, yeah. Yeah. Last time I looked, it was a little while ago, when I looked, the the, the wind plus solar was on the and I think that included the rooftop solar was on the order of about twenty five percent, and then adding in the hydro took it to about into the thirties, about about a third, something like that. Um, obviously, it's it's, it's con continually, gradually increasing. Um, yeah, where where is the saturation point? Is I don't think it's a hard and fast line. So you, you can't say you can have exactly this much and no more and no less. What happens is you, you, you the problems gradually start to get worse as you push the share higher, and and you'll you'll experience I think at least three different types of saturation problems. One is the technical problems that, that are caused because you've got more and more generation that can't match the, the load, the you know, supply can't match the demand. That's one problem. And then the economic problems where you have um, a combination of negative prices when there's too much wind and sun and then extremely high prices on the flip side uh, and, it, and in between incredible volatility and then an overall increasing of the, of the price level which is the opposite of the message we're being told. We're being told it's cheap, but actually it's expensive and it's driving up the price level. So that, there's a whole set of economic saturation symptoms. And then the third one is the political symptoms. And so some of those political saturation symptoms are the result of price increases when people have been told they'd go down. Um, 
and so no one likes price increases at any time, but especially not when you've been told they'll go down. And then the other big political problems that we're seeing is certainly in the rural areas, you're seeing this up in uh, far north Queensland, but we're seeing this up and down the, the eastern Australia, up and down the Great Divide. Rural communities, farmers uh, are realising what's being imposed on them and that they haven't been properly consulted about the sheer scale of this, um, both with the farms themselves and the, they're calling them factories now in rural areas, not farms. Uh, and, and the transmission that's being proposed. So it, it's hard to tell exactly which will bind first. Will it be the technical, the economic, the political, or some combination of those? But we can see the signs already emerging. And certainly, I mean, we are on a trajectory, if you believe the government, to get to 82% renewables by 2030. That's just less than seven years away, six, six years and yeah. four months, or thereabouts, right? Yeah. Three months. Yeah. So... It was from, as you say, around about 32, 33, call it a third at the moment of that, you know, maybe eight, nine percent is hydro. All the growth is going to have to come from wind and solar because hydro is too, too difficult, too expensive and long term to put in. <laughs> is there any, any way in the world that we can achieve that? Uh, I, I wouldn't be betting any money at all on that. I certainly wouldn't be betting a house on it and I wouldn't be betting even, you know, $10 on it. I think that's extremely difficult to, to physically build um, what they're proposing to build and interconnect it all fully, I think, is, is extremely difficult. Um, but I don't think that's the main problem. I think the main problem is that even if we were able to physically do that, the system wouldn't work properly. It just wouldn't function properly and we'd have all kinds of problems with stability and blackouts and all the rest if we actually managed to do that very difficult task. It's like, can you, Nick, could, you know, is it possible for me to stand on a diving platform and, you know, do a double twist and a back somersault or whatever, you know, some really difficult Olympic dive? Well, it's pretty unlikely. But, but if what I'm landing on is a concrete surface and not a diving pool, then it would be better if I didn't even try. And, and that is, I think, the situation we're in here. So if the people in the rural areas, the farmers, if they manage to stop this steamroller that's coming towards them, that will actually be good for the country, in my humble opinion. Well, more, more strength to them, Stephen. Thank you very much for joining us on Battleground. Thank you, it's my pleasure, Nick. Well, that's it for another edition of Battleground. Thanks to the people at ADH TV for making this possible. Thanks too to the people of the Atherton Tablelands for making me feel so welcome up there earlier in the week. Good luck. Good luck with your battle against the Chilumban wind farm. And most of all, thank you for watching. Good night.